0: We don't have a lot of time today because we're going to take part in the Lord's table as well. So this is going to be a short message. And this is really part two from last week. You've come to Calvary at a time where we're working through a topical series on eldership. And uh, we're hoping to produce a book of training material for future elders. And so what, we've been, what you've been hearing the last few weeks are simply adaptations of those chapters from that book. And uh, today is really just half of one of those chapters. And you remember last week that we are going to talk about greed and drunkenness. And uh, we only got through that first topic. So today is going to be uh, part two of that. And so, yeah, kind of a sermon, but it's really a second half of a chapter from our leadership material. So uh, this is going to apply to all of us, however, as we're going to see. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 10, we're going to be there in just a second. But Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3 are, are two passages that... Uh, Uh, give us qualifications for elders. And I'm going to read to you Titus 1, verse 7 through 8, and 1 Timothy 3, verse 2 through 3. Paul says to Titus, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Paul also wrote to his young emissary, Timothy, who was in Ephesus, and he says, "...therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money." And those passages continue, but one of the things we're struck with is that everything there, uh, except for being apt to teach, are are expectations of every believer. And so we know that this is very applicable to all of us, as I've been trying to emphasize uh, during each of these sermons in this series. Paul wrote to Titus. Titus was on the island of Crete, and his job or his responsibility was to go from town to town and to appoint elders over each of the fledgling churches. Crete was a very interesting uh, uh, nation in that uh, it had a reputation when it came to wine. So much so that when Rome conquered the island nation in about 66 B.C., they quickly took advantage of the fertile land and the wine industry, and Rome started exporting that wine throughout the region, throughout the Mediterranean and Europe. Now, this was really referred to as the golden age of Cretan wine. So much so that uh, that whole time period was kind of captured by this maxim, that is, Rome conquered Crete, but Cretan wine conquered Rome. Wine and its abuses were abundant in Crete and the region. As you can imagine, Cretan wine would have featured prominently in the worship of the god Dionysus. Dionysus, known as Bacchus to the Romans, was the Greek god of wine and winemaking and grape cultivation. Uh, some legends even suggested that Crete was the birthplace of Dionysus. In addition to being the god of wine. Dionysus was also known as the god of fertility and ritual madness and theater and religious ecstasy. So considering how prominently wine, alcohol, and its abuses were uh, in the life and culture of Crete, it makes sense that as Paul's writing to Timothy, or to Titus, I should say, uh, look for elders, but you've got to find elders who have come out of the culture and have rejected the culture's approach to wine and alcohol and find men instead who are to never be accused of drunkenness. Well, I think we would do well also to recognize that our culture uh, really exemplifies the abuse of, in many ways, uh, not only wine but alcohol in general. And so we do well to pay heed to these warnings as well. For many, drunkenness has become an escape. And notice, uh, by the way, Uh, In those two passages, the word is drunkard, the biblical word, and that has the idea of being associated with wine, associated with alcohol. For many, drunkenness is a welcomed escape. It's a way of dealing with the stresses of life. When someone is drunk, there are streams of dopamine that bring a wave of pleasure and relaxation, lifting one's mood and even providing new motivation. With the dopamine are also endorphins, Dampening feelings of pain, bringing a powerful sense of well-being. When one is drunk, their inhibitions are lost. The drunk is overwhelmed with a sense of freeness. The introvert becomes the social butterfly, right? Uh, The one who's generally quiet, and maybe you know somebody like this, becomes the drunken philosopher, the smartest person in the room. It's no wonder that alcohol and other intoxicants have been embraced by those who are struggling to cope with life. Along with the waves of physical relaxation and reduced stresses, however, are a host of negatives. If you just take that first paragraph, you say, well, is he trying to sell us on alcohol? It sounds pretty good. Uh, there's a host of other negative effects. The tranquilizing effect of alcohol severely alters one's judgment and decision-making. The internal controls, which generally inhibit poor decisions and informed judgment, are suppressed. And so the the drunk person is likely to act impulsively only for the moment without any regard for long-term consequences. It's this loss of inhibition and this decrease in cognitive abilities which often leads to violence and drunk driving and other humiliating behavior. Drunkenness, and by the way, we're dealing with drunkenness here, not with the moderate use of alcohol, as we'll make clear in a moment. Drunkenness has the potential to produce lasting damage to others and especially to our reputations. Further, since alcohol and other intoxicants have a powerful effect, effect on the brain, they're also uh, addiction-forming. As the reward system of the brain is repeatedly triggered through intoxication, a habit is formed. The habit leads to withdrawal, and those withdrawal symptoms seem a lot like the negative counterparts to uh, kind of the pleasant feelings that we've already noted. And so, what's sought as the antidote to the withdrawal symptoms? Just more alcohol. The cycle continues. Dependency is formed. And then what happens when one becomes dependent or addicted? Well, now you have feelings of remorse. You have feelings of embarrassment. You have feelings of shame brought on by the new dependency. And how then do you deal with those feelings of remorse and shame and embarrassment? Well, you do deal with that the way you deal with coping and many other disappointments in life by turning to alcohol. And the cycle continues. A person's life and character end up on a downward spiral. And so we recognize this morning that intoxication, we're not talking about the moderate use of alcohol yet, intoxication is destructive. It's no wonder then that the universal testimony of Scripture is that drunkenness is a sin. Drunkenness is debauchery, according to the Bible, is grouped with sins like sexual immorality, idolatry, and sorcery. The Bible says that drunkenness should not be present in anyone who calls themselves a Christian. A sample, Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Galatians 5.19, now the works of the flesh, and I'll listen to this list here. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, this is pretty severe. Drunkenness included in a list characterizing those Who, according to Paul, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Romans 13, let us walk properly as the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. This is how severe intoxication and drunkenness is. Where Paul could say that such a one will not inherit the kingdom of God, where he can say if one claims to be a brother or a sister in the faith, but they're prone to alcoholism or to drunkenness, don't associate with that one because those two things are absolutely uh, incompatible. To be drunk is to live in the human passions, which once characterized us as unbelievers and not for the will of God. Further, the drunk is one of the unrighteous, again, who will not inherit the kingdom of God. To be intoxicated is to feed and inflame the worst of human passions. So much so that Paul recognizes that drunkenness is a suitable antithesis to being filled with the Holy Spirit. So Ephesians chapter 4, uh, he says very plainly, or Ephesians chapter 5, I'm sorry, be uh, do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Whereas the Spirit brings order and control intoxication brings disorder and the loss of control. Whereas the Spirit speaks truth, intoxication brings forth nonsense. While the Spirit produces holiness, intoxication leads to sin. And as as we've already noted, while the Spirit produces Christ-likeness, drunkenness inflames the passions of the flesh. And so the elder, like all believers, is to be known... For his sober-mindedness, his self-control, his self-discipline, and otherwise even-keeled temperament. Christians are to be masters of their own passions. And in such control of their faculties that they can satisfy their Lord's command to be ever-watchful. As Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour This will be a lesson in a few weeks, but the Christian is called to practice a self-watch, and that self-watch requires a sober-mindedness, a watchfulness. As Christians, we're to be ever watchful, always in control, continually sober-minded, sound in judgment. We're to be known for our reasonableness. Now listen, our faith enables us to face the fears and anxieties and disappointments of life with grace. Without the need to run to escapism through intoxication, we don't need to run to substances to dull our senses or to manufacture some chemically induced sense of well being so that we can handle the difficulties of life. We can face life head on. We can rear up under life's challenges as believers, all the while experiencing genuine peace. For the Christian, it's faith and not escape, which enables us to deal with the stresses of life. This is why Paul could say to believers in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5, now listen, he says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let this just be your overall reputation, reasonableness. And he says this, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. How do you deal with the anxieties? Are there anxieties in life? Are there fears in life? Are there disappointments in life? Yes, but how do we deal with those things? The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Are you an avoider this morning? Are you one of those individuals who the difficulties, anxieties, fears uh, of life cause you to just kind of ignore, kind of push them aside, not to deal with them? Why? Because you know your own frailty. You feel like you can't handle, you can't rear up under those things, so you'd rather avoid them. But the Bible says uh, the Christian faith enables us to uh, handle those anxieties head on. How? By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, letting our requests be made known to God. And what's the consequence, then, of dealing with the fears and anxieties and disappointments of life in this very healthy, spiritual way? What's the consequence? He says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so, as believers, we don't seek to escape from reality through intoxication. Instead, we say our faith enables us to handle reality in a God-honoring way that results in real peace, not some chemically induced Escapism. And so, a man fit for eldership, and by the way, I guess we should pause there and say uh, that it doesn't have to be alcohol, right? There's all sorts of means, all sorts of approaches that we take to avoid the difficulties or to handle the difficulties of life, that escapism. And it doesn't have to be alcohol, it could be any type of substance uh, or practice. And so, a man fit for eldership, and again, this applies to us all, has learned how his faith enables him to deal with the difficulties of life. Most of the sin in our lives are simply us trying to deal uh, with the legitimate concerns and struggles of life, but dealing with them in an illegitimate way. And so you're dealing with something in your life, and you you ask yourself, Lord, how have you provided for me so that I can approach this or handle this in a healthy, God-honoring way? Because you know that He's given you everything that pertains to life and godliness. You know that there's no temptation that will overtake you, that God will not also provide the way to escape. And so, Lord, show me how Christ enables me to handle this so that I don't resort to illegitimate means to cope with life. That's the confidence we can have. And so the elder has learned how his faith enables him to deal with the difficulties of life. This is essential for us all, but it's essential for elders because ministry, believe it or not, is stress-inducing. An elder is continually concerned with meeting spiritual needs, comforting the grieving, counseling the struggling, dealing with the weak, handling critics with grace, balancing ministry and home life, all the while struggling with the tyranny of the urgent and the responsibilities of Sunday. Uh, if a man has not learned how to, lo- how to lean into his relationship with Jesus to cope with such struggles and such ministry pressures in a God-honoring way, he will be tempted to find some other means. Because it's like stress is like water, right? I mean, it's going to surface somehow. It's going to make, uh, you put that pressure there, and uh, it's going to find the uh, weakest point, and a, a leak is going to be sprung, right? Uh, there's no avoiding that. And so we've got to find the right way to channel those pressure, pressures in a way that honors God. And so if we don't learn that, we're going to find some less helpful or perhaps sinful means to manage stress. And so you see how this applies to all of us. And so, as elders, consider how to approach alcohol. we got to take those temptations seriously because of the stress of ministry. If I open myself up to such a substance like alcohol, that may be an easy escape in order to deal with the stresses of life. And you might not be an elder, but maybe you have a stressful occupation. You have other things going on in your life that are constantly bringing anxiety into your life. Well, how are you coping with those things? Uh, We're going to look at some principles in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 when it comes to alcohol. And you might find that although the Bible permits the moderate use of alcohol, you might come to a place where you realize maybe that's not something I want to avail myself to, even though I know it's a perfectly legitimate liberty that's available to me. Well, despite the destructive potential of alcohol, the Bible doesn't say that drinking is a sin. In fact, Uh, The abundance of wine is often presented by God as an indication of blessing, uh, believe it or not. Uh, But the expectation is that it's going to be handled with moderation, as we're going to see. And so, this then becomes an area of liberty. What do I mean by that? Well, this is one of those areas in which you do have liberty to exercise. Uh, uh, However, what we're going to see biblically is that there are strong biblical principles that the Bible gives us when we determine how to handle such liberties. And so this now is going to be thrown back into your lap. You understand that the Bible permits you to drink alcohol. I believe that when Jesus turned water into wine, he didn't make grape juice, okay? Uh, that was alcoholic wine. Uh, and so the Bible permits the moderate use of alcohol. Uh, however, there's some strong principles that are going to help us understand how to handle those things as we're going to see. And that takes us to 1 Corinthians chapter 8-10. through Paul is dealing with a similar question here. He's dealing with meat offered to idols, and you say, well, that's not similar. Well, it is in that it's an area or was an area of Christian liberty. Something that was not sinful, something that Christians had the liberty to indulge in, however, had the potential, as we're going to see, to become damaging. In the cultural context here of 1 Corinthians chapter 8-10, through The question which loomed large among believers was whether or not a Christian could eat meat that had previously been offered to idols. Some suggested that it was sinful. Sinful to eat meat, yeah, because to them, to eat that meat was tantamount to acknowledging the false god to whom it was offered. For others, since idols were actually non-existent, the meat was just that, just meat, like just pray and eat, which is actually clearly what the Bible teaches, just pray and eat the meat, it's fine. In addressing that question, though, uh, look in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through 6. Paul's going to help the Corinthians think through this. you got this thing out there. There's a question among, there's different opinions about it. Uh, and so uh, some are saying, you cannot do this. My conscience is violated. This is uh, harmful. It's not right for you to do. And others were saying, it's perfectly fine. Paul's going to help them navigate this. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through 6. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that quote all of us possess knowledge unquote this knowledge puffs up but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to be as uh, he ought to know, but if anyone loves God he is known by God. Therefore as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no god but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, quote-unquote, and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, In one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Okay, what's going on here? As Paul addresses this question about the liberty to eat meat offered to idols, first of all, what he does is he establishes what is true. He says, well, right out the gate here, we know there's no such thing as idols. There's one God and one Father, and we should have this knowledge. And so you say, okay, well, then case closed. We know their idols are not real. They're just made up figments. So who cares if someone in their imagination takes some meat and dedicates it to an imaginary God, right? Eat the meat. Uh, And you say, okay, case closed. Let's move on. But that's not what Paul does. And this becomes now very, very instructive for us when it comes to areas of Christian liberty. And so look in verse 7, he says, However, however, after establishing the absolute truth that idols are nothing, and that you should just be able to pray and eat the meat and enjoy it. He continues in verse 7, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, and now all of a sudden we have to put our eyes on others, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. And then again, he kind of establishes what is the reality. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do eat. Let's let's get this straight, okay? You're not currying favor with God based upon what you eat or what you don't eat. We're not talking about abstinence here uh, from perfectly legitimate foods. And then he follows that again with a, but, but, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, all of a sudden, Paul introduces an essential principle when it comes to how we deal with our Christian liberty. And please, right out the gate here, let me tell you, I'm not trying to take your liberty from you. Okay? Uh, I, and we're going to see in a moment, Hopefully, like the apostle Paul will defend your right and your Christian liberty. When it comes to the area of drinking alcohol, I will defend that as a, as your, as a area of Christian liberty and you have the right to moderately drink alcohol. So please understand that I'm not trying to take that liberty away from you. Okay. So if you felt that way, just let the defenses down. Okay. I'm not trying to take that liberty away from you. However, uh, we are going to look at some principles that are helpful as we think about those liberties. So Paul says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And again, he helps us understand that as we think about areas that are perfectly legitimate areas of liberty, we first have to think about, but wait a second, before I do this, how will it impact others? And specifically, how will it impact those who are weak? For, he says, if anyone sees you who have knowledge, and so you understand, an idol's nothing, so I'm going to eat the meat. You understand, the Bible doesn't forbid the moderate consumption of alcohol. You have that knowledge. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died? And so what's the what would be a kind of a, a proper analogy here? So, so somebody who has a background in alcoholism, somebody who has a background in substance abuse, somebody who has suffered at the hands of maybe their own uh, addictive lifestyle, or somebody who has suffered at the hands of others uh, who have lashed out uh, when under the influence. Maybe some who have seen their homes fall apart because of substance abuse. Uh, you, you can go on. Somebody like that then sees a Christian partaking in alcohol and they see in that alcohol everything negative that they've experienced through drugs or through drinking or whatever. And they look at you and say, I've come out of that lifestyle. I've come to Jesus to come out of that culture and now I see you uh, indulging in that. And to them, they associate it with everything that they've been through in the past. And to them, that appears to be sinful. Are they right? No, they're not right. They're not right. Let's establish that. The Bible says you can drink moderately. That's the truth. They're not right. So does that mean that we reject them and say you just need to learn your Bible? Well, hopefully they will learn the scripture and hopefully their conscience will be formed over time. But the point is we have to be sensitive to those whose consciences still remain weak. And so this is not a matter of debate, this is not a matter of quarreling. This is a matter of patiently dealing with those who are weak so that their conscience can be better formed according to Scripture over time. But until that time, perhaps we need to limit our liberty for their sake. And so, Paul continues, if we then offend that weak conscience brother or sister, he says, and so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, Christ died for them, and now you are offending them and really becoming a stumbling block to them, then he describes such an action this way. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And all of a sudden, listen, something, who is a, something which is a legitimate Christian liberty, which is not sinful at all, suddenly becomes very, very sinful. When? when our exercise of it is done in such a way where it harms the conscience of others. So how does Paul respond to this? Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. going can be hard for some of you today who are on the carnivore diet, right? According to Paul, before we make a decision about how we exercise our Christian liberty, and you can apply these principles beyond alcohol we must first consider how the decision might affect other people. Again, specifically those who are weaker than us. And this is just Christ-like attitude, putting the needs of others before our own. The weaker believers in view there, again, are those who had some former association. When these individuals considered the meat offered to idols, they saw in that that whole culture of idol worship. They associated with everything that was wrong with that system. For them to eat that meat was to acknowledge the idol, It was to associate with that religion. In their minds, it was to betray Christ. Again, they were wrong, but that's how they felt. And Paul, again, is, is very clear that we're not worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. The question is simply this. Put it this way. Our concern when it comes to Christian liberties, the ultimate question is not, is this thing right? The ultimate question for us is, is this thing helpful? It's not, is this thing legitimate? It's, does this thing build up? Is there potential to harm a weaker brother or sister through our drinking or whatever? Might it offend the weaker brother or sister who has a bad history with alcohol? Might it embolden a fellow believer to partake in alcohol who doesn't have the self-control to exercise moderation? Might my exercise of legitimate Christian liberty put a stumbling block in front of a brother or sister in Christ? Before we decide what we do with alcohol, we must heed Paul's warning, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to others. And so, we are called to humbly count others as more significant than ourselves. We're called to look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, when making decisions about Christian liberty... Others must come first. It's for this reason that something not sinful, like drinking alcohol or eating meat, can easily become sinful when it harms the faith of others. And so Paul Paul made this clear uh, to those among the Corinthians, again, who are willing to put their Christian liberty before the spiritual well-being of the brothers. He says in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 8, we've already covered this, Sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. The spiritual vitality of others is so important to the Apostle Paul that he's willing to sacrifice his personal liberties to prevent their stumbling. This, to me, is a wonderful mark of spiritual maturity. There are those who I've kind of coined the term. Maybe I didn't coin it. I don't know. Maybe I got it from somewhere else. But uh, the liberty hounds... These are those who just sniff out their Christian liberty in every corner they can find it and are determined to exercise their Christian liberty to its greatest degree. And it's as if they wear that liberty on their shoulder. And they're asking you to come and knock it off. Right? I dare you to approach me and to challenge me about my Christian liberty so I can go to battle with you and try to prove to you from Scripture that what I'm doing is not sinful. That, to me, betrays a lot of insecurity. That's that person who's not secure in their liberty in Christ. And so because they're not secure in it, they have to constantly grasp for it and to protect it. Like, how dare you come to me and think that you can take my liberty away from me? It's like that dog, you know, you say, don't pet a dog while he's eating, right? That perfectly docile dog, but when he's got his food, you don't reach for him because you're afraid he might bite you. It's the same thing, but instead of that dog food and the dog dish, it's their Christian liberty. And uh, don't you dare come to me and suggest that you're going to take this away from me. Christian maturity, on the, on the other hand, says, I have liberty. It's not going anywhere. Nobody can take it from me. I am free in Christ. And because I'm secure in what I have, I also am secure in limiting it myself. It's an awesome mark of Christian maturity. And so Paul could say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when he starts the conver- or continues the conversation, 1 Corinthians 10.23, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Here's the governing principle. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink, and there we see that Paul is expanding the principle beyond just meat offered to idols, and is very applicable to us this morning. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And how do we do it to the glory of God? Well, he tells us, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. And so how do you glorify God when you eat or you drink? Don't offend. Don't offend the Jew or the Greek. Look after their spiritual well-being beyond your own spiritual liberty. This is a mark of maturity. And so, although all of that applies to all believers, we can see how elders, above all people, should be careful to apply these things. The very calling of a pastor is to exercise spiritual watch care over God's people. How much the more then should elders be on guard against becoming a stumbling block to the believers over whom they are to be exercising spiritual watch care? And so here's a few practical guidelines, practical guidelines as we close. First, we should not flaunt our liberty. We should not flaunt our liberty. If you choose to take part in some area of liberty, although legitimate, if it might have the potential to offend weaker brothers, then be careful about how you make it known. I've personally have experienced those that I think are insecure in their liberty, who, when they exercise that liberty, feel compelled to post it on social media. And so you've got uh, those who maybe love the craft beer, uh, they like to, to explore different types of alcohol and a Christian brother, a Christian sister. And when they partake in it, they, they have to put it on Instagram. So, like, well, to me, that conveys something about that person's view of their liberty. Almost to say, I'm waiting for the negative comment. I'm waiting for the negative comment so I can defend my liberty. Well, let's just be careful not to flaunt our liberty especially when it comes to something like social media, because you have such a mixed bag of audience there, you don't know who that's going out to and who that might embolden to do something that they're not prepared to handle with moderation. And so we have to be careful, recognizing that our example may embolden others who can't exercise moderation, might offend others who haven't yet been able to grasp their liberty. The need to broadcast one's exercise of Christian liberty, again, seems to betray a bit of insecurity. Number two, Elders should consider how their own character and their own ability to exercise moderation. They should consider their own character and their own ability to exercise moderation. What do I mean by this? Remember when we were talking about sexuality and I said that we ought to exercise a sexual self-awareness? And I said that know when you are most sexually tempted. And so when you're tired, when you're weak, when you're disappointed, when you're lonely, whatever it may be. And just be on guard. Know your own weaknesses and then uh, act accordingly. Uh, well, also when it comes to alcohol, you may, frankly, have a propensity to an addictive uh, personality. You, you may be subject uh, to uh, addiction or others might not be. And so do a little self-assessment and ask yourself, yes, I have this liberty, but am I one who, frankly, may be prone to addiction? And if you think that you may be, then avoid the liberty. Everyone's different. And so one who might be able to handle it, others may not be able to handle it. And by the, by the way, this is, can be applied in, in lots of areas. Know yourself and uh, limit your liberty accordingly. Next of all, we should be careful not to make our decision to drink or not to drink based upon what freedoms others are exercising. But again, what we, upon what we can or cannot p- personally handle. Our overarching concern ought to be whether or not drinking alcohol may hinder our ability to be, quote-unquote, above reproach. Lastly, feel the freedom to defend Christian liberty while not partaking in Christian liberty. Feel free to defend the Christian liberty of others while not taking part yourself. This is what the Apostle Paul did. While refusing to avail himself uh, to the right to be paid as a preacher, he defended the rights of pastors to be paid, for instance. He defended the right to to eat meat offered to idols, yet he was willing to say, if it offends a brother, uh, I I won't eat any meat to the end of the world. Defended the rights of others while also limiting his own. Paul understood that his position as spiritual leader made his example very influential. In observing his example, others might become emboldened, offended, or even accusatory, and so he sought to avoid it all by limiting his own liberties when he chose not to exercise, or to say when we choose not to exercise our Christian liberty in one area or another, we are not denying that liberty or withholding it from others. Instead, we're simply modeling what it is to put others first. And so I would say if you're a preacher or a potential elder, feel free to preach freedom in Christ, even in an area of alcohol, while setting an example of abstinence. That's perfectly legitimate, and I think that follows the example of the Apostle Paul. So in conclusion, greed and drunkenness might seem like unrelated vices. Remember, this is part two from last week. But both emerge from the same corrupt root. Both greed and drunkenness are the product of uncontrolled lust. One is a lust for money and stuff. The other is a lust for physical release Both focus on the fleshly and the earthly, instead of the heavenly and spiritual. Both flow from discontentment. Greed flows from a discontentment with what one has, and so seeks satisfaction through stuff. Drunkenness flows from a discontentment with what one experiences, and seeks to escape through substances. Both sins have the potential to bring extreme consequence, and so the presence of either disqualifies one from eldership. Regarding alcohol, questions, do you drink only in moderation? Moderate drinking, the Bible uh, does not forbid. Drunkenness, it does. When you drink, are you always aware that this exercise of liberty carries the potential to embolden or offend weaker brothers? Do you put the spiritual well-being of others before your right to drink? Are you prepared to limit your liberty out of love, like the Apostle Paul, if necessary? Are you willing to lay aside your privileges out of service to others like Jesus? Have you approached the question of whether or not you should drink at all with serious self-reflection? Have you considered your own propensity for sin, potential immoderation, or susceptibility to addiction? Have you entertained the possibility that total abstinence from alcohol might be the best option to protect your reputation as one who is above reproach? as well as the best way to ensure that your use of alcohol could never become a stumbling block to others? And so as we consider those questions, we ought to just keep Paul's words in the forefront of our mind. So whether we eat or whether we drink, whatever we do, do all to the glory of God, giving no offense to the Jew or to Greek or to the church of God. And he says, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and you say, okay, I don't usually come to church. I've come here and I've heard a sermon on what I shouldn't do. understand that Jesus said in John chapter 8 that everyone who comes to him would find freedom. And he said this, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The real slavery or bondage or restriction comes through a life of sin, and Jesus has come to free us from that. And that's why this morning you've heard the term liberty a lot, liberty, Christian liberty. Why? Because we're free in Christ. And so He has come and He's delivered us from the bondage or the captivity or the slavery of sin, and He's brought us to a place where we have peace and we have full satisfaction uh, through Him. And so He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so this morning, if you come to Christ, this is not a relationship of restriction. This is not a relationship of you must do this and do this and not do this and not do this in order to be right with the Lord, as Jared said earlier during the catechism. We're talking about here is placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Repenting of your sin, believing in Him, and through Christ you find true satisfaction. Uh, He may have to disabuse you of this idea that some of what you feel brings freedom and satisfaction now actually is a corrupted freedom and satisfaction and is not true satisfaction. But ultimately, genuine peace comes through Christ. And so come to Christ. Uh, How do you do that? Well, acknowledge that you need Jesus as your Savior. He died for you on the cross to pay for your sin, to free you from the captivity of sin, and He's also now exalted as Lord. And so trust Jesus as your Savior from sin, and you're also submitting to Him as Lord or as authority. And that's what baptism displays, as we saw this morning. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank You for Your Word, and we pray that You would help us this morning to be responsible. Help us to be mature. If there's any here this morning who, uh, when it comes to areas of alcohol, have been immoderate, then I pray that you would convict them of that. Help them to see uh, that drunkenness is always presented as sin, the intoxication, whether it be through alcohol or any, any other substance. And so uh, I pray you, if we're those who are believers, that you convict them of this sin. Help them to see that that's incompatible with the Christian life. Help them instead to find how to cope with life in a way that honors you, to find true peace and satisfaction and fulfillment and ability to cope with life in a very healthy way instead of through these illegitimate means. So I pray that you'd help them not just to uh, seek to stop a sinful behavior, but to uh, then go on to see that how you actually answer uh, those struggles in a legitimate way. And then, Lord, we just pray for any this morning uh, maybe struggling with areas of Christian liberty. Maybe they have... Um, been irresponsible. Maybe they've been more determined to defend their rights than they have been determined to uh, care for the spiritual well-being of others. I pray that you convict us in those areas as well because we know that even legitimate liberties can become sin uh, when we exercise them with disregard for others. So show us areas in which we've been irresponsible with our liberty and help us to clean up those areas of our lives and to put others first. And then we just pray for those who are not yet Christians. We pray that you'd help them to see their need for Jesus, their need for salvation from sin, and uh, their need to follow him. So we just pray your spirit would continue to apply your word in these many different ways. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.